I believe profoundly that every Christian is in full-time ministry. In fact, people sometimes say, when did you enter the ministry? And I say, on December the 18th, 1979, when I was converted. Mm. That is, every Christian is in ministry, a servant of, of, of the great servant. So I'm wanting to encourage every Christian to be thinking about ministry. But because in front of me were a group of people who had recognised Bible teaching gifts, I thought that had to be a right implication. What does it mean to live a radical life for Jesus? And how do you teach the Bible in a way that encourages Christians to do so? In today's episode, we sat down with William Taylor once again to ask him more about his talk series in Luke chapter 17 to 19, delivered to leaders and Bible teachers. In particular, we asked him about the final talk he gave in this series on Luke chapter 19 and the parable of the Ten Meaners. You can find this talk on the Bible Matters podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. We asked William how this passage fits into this section of Luke's gospel, which seems to be concerned with the kingdom of God, and how this in turn fits into the entirety of Luke's gospel. In addition, we talked about how to preach passages in a way which really engages the listener, especially when the passages call for radical life change. My name's Leo Elborn. And I'm Tiff Stromso. And this is the Bible Matters podcast, encouraging faithful Bible teaching and ministry. William Taylor, welcome to the show. Well, it's just lovely to be here again. Nice to see you both. William, what was it about the parable of the Ten Meaners that made you quit your job and work for the church? Well, I think really it was this question of accountability and the well-done good servant and am I being faithful with what the Lord has given me? So I don't think teaching the parable of the Ten Meaners, which... I think I did for the first time as a talk on an Oak Hall holiday. They take people on holiday for a week or 10 days. And it was an extraordinary thing. They're just the most lovely and wonderful visionary couple who lead Oak Hall called Ian and Judy Mayo. And I had taken a group of teenage kids down to Oak Hall and Ian came up to me at the end and said, would you come and speak on one of our holidays? And I was, what was I? I must have been about 28, just left the army, didn't know my left hand from my right. And I said, yes. And off I went with a rep from Oak Hall, me and like 50 or 60 other people on holiday to the south of France. We stayed in tents and there was a big tent where we all met and a dog came in one night and bit one of the <laughs> oh, <no>. members <laughs> but that, that's an aside that's a, that's an aside and um i i gave these talks and so but i don't think i would have i'd had, had a clue of quite how the parable of the ten meaners worked in this section of luke's gospel at that stage it was just that idea of well done, good servant, because you've been faithful in very little, you'll have authority over 10 cities. And am I being faithful 
As Tiff's alluded to, we're going to be talking today about this last talk in your series, which was focusing on Luke chapter 19, verse 11 to 27, the parable of the 10 minas. Uh, William, just for the sake of forgetful people like me, can you just remind me what happens in this parable? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the nobleman uh, heading off into the far country to receive for himself a kingdom. Remember, we've suggested that the whole piece is about when the kingdom comes and then the nobleman not being um, there but entrusting his work to to various of uh, his servants, encouraging them to engage in business until he returns. Some citizens not wanting him to be made king. And this was standard stuff. It was actually... Apparently, according to the you know the, the boffins, it, it actually happened. Um, you know, one of the, the leaders went off to, to Rome to be given his position of authority, um, and there were people who didn't want him to be king at all. So it's a contemporary story taken by Jesus. Of course, the key in parables is always in the context, and we're told there he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem, and they supposed the kingdom of God was to appear immediately which takes us right back to the beginning. When will the kingdom come? And is it actually going to come now this minute? And Jesus here is teaching there will be a delay. So even this parable, like you were saying in the last episode, it's within that context of when will the kingdom come? What will it look like? That's actually steering how we interpret this parable. That's what you're saying. That's right. But this is, this is back to the final coming when he returns. William, can you take us back to your study? Um, can you give us a glimpse of your process in studying this passage? The same as the process that I always go through. So what I always do when I'm teaching a, a new piece of material is to um, print out the text. I actually download it off a software program and then print out the text and originally would have taken chapter 9, verse 50, 152, right the way through to chapter 19, verse 58. So I'm carrying around kind of a wadge of paper. Now, you guys, you probably don't know what paper is, but you know, so I will have this all printed out down the left side. I actually go through it and, you know, clause by clause by clause, lay it out down the left-hand side of a page, and then I have a line to the right of the text. I read it and 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 read it again. And I'll have it printed out both in English and in Greek. I'll be reading it, reading it, reading it. And then words that I think I need to pause and think about that, um, then I will be actually making it what is the word? What does it mean? Where else is it used by Luke? What does it mean when it's used elsewhere by Luke? And then I'm working on, okay, what is the section? And now we got the section. And then when I'm down to, okay, what passage am I actually going to teach? Then I will have verses 11 through 27 printed out down the left-hand side of the page, one sheet in English, another sheet in, in, in Greek, and I'll be working on the text itself. So there's a lot of book work, I guess we could say, that goes on before looking at the verses you're going to preach on. That's right. And I think the first time through, you know, I was you know, using the commentaries quite a bit. So I was reading the text, studying the text, considering the text. But also, I think I, I read, looked at Daryl Bock. He was helpful. Um, the other 
books that I think have been helpful uh, is Nolan's commentary. I think that is actually of the technical ones, personally, I think the most helpful. Trouble with the technical ones is they don't really necessarily give you the flow of where the whole text is going. So there's so much detail, you don't see the wood for the trees. But that can be very helpful. I mean, Nolan's commentary, you need a small JCB to carry it around. It's three <laughs> volumes. But anyway, there you are. And then actually, I think David Gooding's material is very helpful. He, I think he asks all the right questions. Sometimes his structures, to me, seem a little eccentric, but you know, you may be really persuaded by them. I don't know. But it, goodness, because he asks the right questions, they're really, really worth reading. John Mason's got a helpful piece. Um, and there are Joel Green has got a commentary, which I think I read. I don't agree with the big direction of where he's going one little bit, but actually his, his, it's, it's a useful piece. So you're reading commentaries, not just to find answers, but actually it sounds like to often ask questions and throw up ideas. What do other people think? Um, you know, am I mad? And if I'm the only person who thinks it, then I will often be on to other people and say, do you think I'm mad? You know, so the number of <laughs> our you know, staff who've received a call from me saying, look, I'm, I'm seeing this. I and do think I'm batty because I can't find anybody else in the world who's thinking this, but it seems to be what the text is saying. And uh, usually the answer is, yep, William, yeah. <laughs> this confirms all our worst suspicions. I had that a couple of years ago, I was preaching on Ecclesiastes 8. I mean, who knows what Ecclesiastes 8 is saying? And I had an idea about it, but I'd just not read it anywhere else. So I went to one colleague who I trust immensely and I said, you know, what do you think? And he said, yeah, it sounds all right. And I thought, great. Did the talk. A few people listened to the recording. All of them came up to me and said, really not sure about Ecclesiastes 8, Leo. <laughs> There we go. You got to make those mistakes sometimes. Yeah, yeah. That, but but I, yeah, that's right. But I'm sure you would have said things which were true and good, and they will have been used by God. And that's the amazing thing. I mean, actually, yeah. when you think about it, that the Lord uses yeah. our desperate attempts <laughs> yeah. at all is um, is wonderful. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I think I'd be in quite a lot of trouble if you didn't. <laughs> William, as you studied the, these verses. What jumped out as the big thing that you wanted to teach from this passage? Well, I do think it is this issue of accountability at the end. But I don't think you can really teach accountability at the end properly unless we understand what we're accountable for, which makes the previous six incidents so vital. How does the kingdom come today? Well, it comes through, you know, the far off being brought near, the nobody becoming somebody and, and so forth, um, and not through. It comes through gospel ministry. And unless you've got that freight to bring forward into this piece you can go off in any number of different directions that will be essentially wrong mm. because you've 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 done you know the old trampoline preaching you've taken mm. this parable mm. you've mm. understood the meaning for what you wanted to understand and as and then you bounced off and said oh well it's all about x y or z mm. actually we've spent the last 6 weeks saying well no this is how the kingdom comes it's not 
kind of the things we were talking about uh, last week. On that, you did particularly talk about an interpretation you think is incorrect. And you talked about how in Matthew's gospel, this is the parable of the talents. And you drew attention to the fact some people preach this and say, well, this is about your talents, whether you're a good gardener or a good musician or whatever. You deliberately made the choice to say that is an incorrect interpretation. Can I just ask you about why you made that choice in particular? Because that is what so many people say. And it's because a, it's popular? It's such a common misunderstanding. I mean, I think you might want to say all sorts of other things that we've uncovered in the previous weeks as we've been going through. You know, it's not about the kingdom does not come with great signs and wonders and the kingdom is not coming through whatever social work or whatever it is you happen to be pushing as kingdom agenda. No, the kingdom comes through the gospel ministry, the good old stuff which they taught us in Sunday school. You know, this is how the kingdom comes, through preaching the gospel and teaching the gospel. It comes quietly. It comes through the message of the death and resurrection. It comes through the miracle of the blind seeing and even the impossible being made possible by God and him summoning Zacchaeus down from the tree. And it's basic. It's so liberating. It's basic standard. So you could have done all that, but because the parallel parable in Matthew's gospel is so profoundly misunderstood, you know, Jemima, Britain's Got Talent, Jemima plays a few flute beautifully, you know, and, and you know, we've all heard that sort of thing done, then I think it did need correction. Mm-hmm. And I've heard it so many times in the city, you know, I must be the best banker I can be, or I must be the best lawyer, or I must be the best, you know, carpentry student or whatever it happens to be because God's given me this particular skill. The talent was a sum of money worth 20 years wages for a manual labourer. And we've just done the calculations and, you know, on a fairly minimal rate, £12 an hour, say, which is slightly above the £11.60 something that it's supposed to be today for the living wage, £12 an hour, that comes just short of half a million pounds. It's, It's a financial sum. It's not got anything to do with kind of my particular gift at playing the uh, the mandolin or whatever it wants to be. <laughs> and Amina, you know, Amina is three months wages for a labourer and same sort of calculation, or is it about 6,000, something like that? So, May I ask a question about one of the details? Uh, you said we've been entrusted with the master's work, but what he's commended on is his faithfulness. So how do we be faithful with the master's work? Well, that's, I mean, that's a very, very good question. And I mean, that has to be with who I am, where I've been placed, the particular temperament character I have, the opportunities I've been given and maximising all that for the gospel work that the Lord Jesus has been talking about in terms of how the kingdom comes today. And I think that can look so different. That's why I'm almost loath to apply it. I can't remember if I said it in the talk, but certainly on previous occasions when I'm teaching this, I've, I've said, look, there are as many different applications to this as there are people sitting in the room. 
And we have a responsibility to say, look, here is the gospel work, far off being brought near, you know, nobody's becoming somebody's, the proclamation of the cross, the blind seeing and so forth. But I've now got to think, given who I am, the opportunities I have and so forth, how am I going to maximise that gospel Mm -hmm. ministry? And I've got heroes. You know, I think I can think of so many people who I look at and I just think, well, they've really done it. And it's wonderful to see. You had a great line. Um, I jotted it down that it would be, you said it would be inappropriate to tell your listeners how to invest your life considering this certain reality. But you said we should be able to cut into our lives at any point over the years and see this wise investment, which I just thought was so helpful. There's not one right way of doing it, but actually at any stage in any Christian's life, we should be able to see that wise investment using whatever situation they're in with whatever assets they have. Mm. And already I feel, you know, oh dear, what a fraud I am. (laughs) I'm not too great a hypocrite because, you know, oh, you say something like that. I think when we are teaching the scriptures, if we teach the Bible with the original author's purpose, and the theology that the author has lined up to make and drive his application. We're not in the business of doing application ourselves, And this may be an area where in expository ministry, actually Bible teaching is slightly different to what maybe some people who are speaking on Sunday by Sunday otherwise might be doing. I think our, our job is to lay before a congregation the kind of application that the author is making, given the context into which the author is writing. And then we will see implications elsewhere. Mm. I don't think I'm in the business of saying, and for you it means this, and for you it means this. We must trust that God the Holy Spirit is working, you know, in multiple different ways across the room in which we're speaking. This is the word of the living God, you know, and the great I am, his word is alive today. And so as I unfold it, and we've seen what the gospel work, what the work of investing faithfully is, it's how the kingdom comes today. And we've been looking at that for the last six weeks. Now, let's let's, let's be thinking, okay, what, what does this actually, um, you know, what, what does this look like putting, and you've got to, Go away and think for yourself and perhaps chat to a friend. But I I have a thing about not using the second person plural, you, from the pulpit, uh, unless kind of you have to. (laughs) One has to, Mm. we have to. (laughs) Um, Because it puts the preacher six foot Mm. above everybody Mm. else. The preacher is telling, actually, no, I want to be taking the scriptures, unfolding it, and then saying to people, now there'll be 150, 200 different applications and the Holy Spirit will be finding implications for each person. Because I guess it's the disciple themselves and God who knows what that disciple has and can do Mm -hmm. and where they're being lazy and where they're not. It's not the preacher or the Christian leader. So yes, it's right for us to let God's word do the work. I think that's right.
we're going to think about how you preached this passage now. As you stood up, I got the sense that you were hoping the gospel would radically change people's lives. That's a weighty aim and that has significant consequences. How did you feel as you did that? Well, I don't think I'm trying to change anybody's life. I don't think that's my job. I think it's God's work. I remember Simon Manchester once saying that there is a profound difference between saying, help, I've got to say something on Sunday, and listen, God has given me something to say. And when I'm still saying, oh, help, I've got to say something on Sunday, or help, I've got to say something profound and life-changing on Sunday, I don't think, now, I'm ready. I haven't really heard what God is saying. And I think the kind of passion in the preacher comes through prayerful, careful preparation, listening to the voice of God and hearing what God has got to say to me. And then one feels the weight of what God is saying and a conviction comes, I've got something to say and God's got something to say and here's something that God has got to say to us together. So if there was any sense of that in the talk, that's where I think it comes from. And I think if one was to say, we've got to kind of generate that kind of feeling without it coming out of a deep understanding of what God's saying in the text, we end up in man-centred and manipulative preaching and, well, emotionally manipulative, man-centred, moralising preaching. And incidentally, talking to, you know, Dick Lucas about this many years ago, you know, he, I, he said that really is what that the whole movement of expository preaching was, he felt, being used by God to deliver us from. You know, I've got to say something to get people to do something on a Sunday. Well, no, 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 we want to hear what the Lord has got to say to us and allow him to do his work. So if there was any sense of that, I think it should be coming from... I mean, I think, when, how can you look at this whole section, which is about the coming of the kingdom, and then the last day when we are summoned one by one mm. to meet him and to be asked to give an account of how we've used the opportunities he's given us with the gospel that he's entrusted to us. I can't, I think it's pretty hard if you've said your prayers, been, been thinking about this and praying for the people we're speaking, speaking to, not to say that with a degree of conviction. I guess all of that is true, but just to push you on it a little bit, there would have still been a way to deliver the talk, which would have been perhaps unhelpful. Was there anything you were particularly thinking about in terms of how you gave the talk to at least get your listeners to listen, if nothing else? I suppose to get people to listen. I mean, you know, I worked through the piece thinking, OK, well, what what must it have been like You know, to, to kind of work your way into the parable? I mean, we know what the parable is about because we're told by Luke, you're always going to understand the parable from the context. And the context is obvious. We're told up front in verse 11, they think the kingdom is going to come 
um, immediately and know there's going to be a delay. So, And also it's about when the kingdom comes and how the kingdom comes and the way the kingdom comes today through all these six different things we've looked at in the previ- previous talks. As I'm doing my preparation and working through, I'm thinking, okay, well, what did it feel like? And what was Amina? And how much was it worth? And you know, then you're thinking, well, actually, as the master disappeared, I think I used like a, his four by four SUV or whatever it is, a trail of dust. You suddenly you've got that. Actually, the talents is you've got you got half a million quid. You know, what are you going to do with it? And or you've got you know six thousand quid or whatever it happens to be. What are you going to do with it? That sense of privilege. And so, I was wanting to bring some of the freight and the weight of the theology of the kingdom coming through because that surely is what the parable is designed to do in this place in this part of the gospel and then and then you know all the the silly stuff about you know even if the city was i can't remember which city it was i chose but you started with birmingham (laughs) oh dear we're gonna get into such trouble again and then named about six others to make sure everybody everybody was i think you landed on guildford's which to be fair i don't think anyone could argue is is it even a city well it is yeah it's got anyway but but you're gonna be um you know even there you're wanting to try and bring listenable detail in, into the into the, the material so that so that people are with you and I think momentum in a talk is really important so what do you mean by that I remember many many years ago you know because I was living in London going to a London show and seeing you know when you go to a show in London if you're lucky enough to go to a show in London they they have made it to London with this show that it is the very best I mean worldwide it has to be one of the best things and you look at if you go to a, a show, you will see there is texture everywhere. So there'll be the main action going on, but all the other parts are working and they're really working towards the main thing going on. So there'll be some person, you know, over to the left of the stage. They're acting out their piece, you know, with all their energy and might. And and I remember thinking to myself, actually, if you're going to, give a talk that really works. There has to be texture, momentum, interest at, at every point. So in any talk that I'm giving, I try to keep it moving, but keep it moving in different ways. So you might have in one point an illustration and you might choose an illustration from your own personal life with an anecdote. But when you come to the next point, your illustration might come from the example of some, you know, historical figure from the past. And, and when you would come to the next point, there might have been something you've read in a book. That So you're wanting just to keep, you're wanting to serve the people to whom you're listening with texture in the talk and momentum, not spending too long on one point and sort of, you know, realising that, that people listening, you know, they are thinking people. And, you know, if you just labour the point endlessly. So keep keeping the thing moving, I, I think, is, is really important with momentum. I presume, unlike the London shows, you don't texture it with a musical number at any point? <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> Another one for next season. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> can, I, can I say a quick thing just on, in terms of momentum, but almost over the series, something I really enjoyed that you did 
is we're thinking about this idea of engaging in business. The master, uh, the master saying, engage in business till I return. And you asked the really helpful rhetorical question of what is this business and took us back to the beginning of the series. It's the nobody's becoming somebody's. I felt you were building up momentum even there in terms of this is one set piece. This is what the work we're involved in. It's interesting on that, you know, there's been some study or something like that to show that how an event ends and our perception of how an event ends actually sways how we perceive the entire event. And they had this example of how Steve Jobs, whenever he was doing one of his keynote speeches for the new iPhone, he'd always finish by saying, oh, and just one more thing. And then he'd say the most exciting thing about the iPhone or, you know, it comes in red or whatever it is. And they were saying, if it ends well and ends memorably, even if the rest of it was trash, then actually people perceive it as something really good. Now, that's not to say your entire series was trash <laughs> thanks, and you thanks. pulled it. <laughs> thanks, right. You, you pulled it endorsement. out of the bag. Endorsement. <laughs> well, it's really interesting. David Cook always says, uh, you know, the Australian preacher, you know, former principal of Sydney Mission Bible College, he, he would always say the, the, the moment in a flight where you need maximum power is takeoff and landing. Huh. And that's where you need maximum. And David is not in it a great expositor and exegete, but he's also a great communicator. And you can just see he's given so much thought to the takeoff and landing. Having said that, you know, then how many times sitting with Dick Lucas preaching on a, a Tuesday lunchtime with, you know, 400, 350, 400 business men and women. Well, that's all we've got time for today. And that's that's where you would finish. You know, there was absolutely no landing whatsoever. Just that. So, you know, there's always rules and uh, there's always, always breaking rules and so forth. So. But I think, I do think, you know, at its best, you if, if you follow the the age-old state, explain, illustrate, apply, link. Next point, logic, link. State, explain, illustrate, implication, link. Next point. If you follow that, you want to be finding texture and variety under each one. So if you if you followed a particular pattern one week, don't do it for 10 weeks on the trot. You know, that you... You sometimes hear people, they, they, all their talks begin exactly the same way. I think that's just lazy. You know, there's a particular way, you know, the question, you know, we're considering. You just think, come on, you can do better than that. Think think a, a, about an interesting way to introduce it. But then if under the first point, under explain, you've gone into detail in a word in such and such a verse, under the second point, then you, you might when you're explaining, explain by looking more widely at the context or something like that. So all the way through texture, texture is what I'm trying to think about. William, are there any sermons you can remember which you've heard in the past that you would call life-changing? Well, I think I knew you were going to ask this question. and I, I've been thinking about it. and I'm, The awful thing is, I don't think so. <laughs> and... Um, as I've been thinking, I, I, I often say to people, how did you get to be the size you are today? Now, I don't mean... I, I don't, Quite I, a few McDonald's did it for me, to be honest with you, William. I don't mean that personally to anybody sitting in this rather small room. Um, 
but you know, how did you get to be, you know, the where you're at today? Well, you just ate a meal and you ate a meal and you ate a meal and you ate a meal. And I, I think there can be a danger of a preacher thinking this sermon has got to be so moving, and and that's where you can get into the manipulative and all the rest of it. And I don't mean we should just have spam and eggs every day. And there will be some that you think is, oh, that was a real feast. But I I think we just teach the scriptures and God grows us. I mean, it is amazing how powerful the word of God is. I can think of, um, you know, an example of somebody um, who who I know really well, who um, heard a talk on Revelation chapter 3, verse 20 as a 16-year-old did nothing about it other than just um, that initial response in terms of getting into a church, getting any other Bible teaching for 30 years. I bumped into him and we started reading the Bible. I said to him, you know, what, what's, what's, you know what, how come you're where you are today? Oh, I heard a talk 30 years ago. And that one sentence has stuck with me for 30 years and so that the word of God is so powerful. We, we do 22-minute talks on a Tuesday lunchtime once a week. And you see people coming in, and that's the only content they get for a week. You know, 168 hours in the week. And they're spending a third of one of those 168. I don't know what that percentage is. But their life gets turned around. And so a little food, 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 and... We grow up in salvation, as Peter puts it in 1 Peter 2. You know, I had spam for the first time ever the other night. What did you make of it? Never again. William, just as we start to draw to a close, I'd love for us to consider this message of your talk, this message of investing the master's assets and your kind of final words in this talk. uh, And indeed, the kind of final words in this series on Luke 17 to 19 uh, was an encouragement for the Christian leaders in front of you to consider full time gospel paid ministry. Why did you include that exhortation in this talk? Well, in a way, I think you'd want to say that every church that is in the business of training men and women in Bible ministry, which every church should be doing, no matter you know how well resourced the church, if if it's just you know thirty members of the congregation, then as a pastor in that church, I should be having my eye on a handful of people and seeking to train them in word ministry. Um, So every church should be doing it. And then out of that group, anybody who has got gifts in handling the scriptures and a, a character to match for leadership should be being encouraged. I had sitting in front of me I can't remember, 150, 200, something like that, small group leaders. And all of them have been trained in word ministry. So if a significant number of them aren't thinking about set aside 
ministry in order to maximise the assets they've been given, then I'm most surprised. So that was geared towards, actually, I believe, you know, from the bottom of my boots or wherever one believes things from, I, I believe profoundly that every Christian is in full-time ministry. In fact, I think people sometimes say, when did you enter the ministry? And I say, on December the 18th, 1979, when I was converted. Mm. You know, I, that is, every Christian is in ministry, a servant of, of, of the great servant. So, so I'm wanting to encourage every Christian to be thinking about ministry. But because in front of me were a group of people who had recognised Bible teaching gifts, I thought that had to be a right implication. And I guess then, what would it look like to maximise the master's assets if you're not in this full-time kind of set-aside paid gospel ministry? Many things. I talked to you about kind of my heroes, sort of one of them, he doesn't know he's a hero of mine, but was a, a guy running an orphanage who was, did I mention him in the talk? He did. Who was yes. a civil engineer yeah. and Brendan. had built Brendan. You know, I mean, there's Brendan. Who would have thought? He has actually enabled vast numbers of people to hear the gospel because he's thought, okay, what is the best way for me, given who I am and the skills I've got, to maximise? And so I don't think you can say it's going to look like this. You know, for, for some of our guys in the city, it looks like them staying in their city job. Um, and you know, maximising opportunities in the office. Some of them end up having quite a degree of responsibility over other people and therefore great opportunity to share the gospel, whether it's in a city job or in a hospital or whatever it happens, or in a school. Great, great opportunity. But then, you know, there are others who, some people listening to will remember VJ Menon. You know, he stayed at the same level as a... Uh, loss-adjusting underwriter in Lloyd's in the marine business and deliberately didn't take promotion for like 15 years. And he was the most experienced loss-adjuster in the marine world in the whole of Lloyd's. But he didn't take promotion, so he had more time to talk to people about the Lord Jesus. So it's going to look different, isn't it, to, to everybody? But everybody then has to make their their own personal decisions. I think if you have Bible teaching gifts, then you want to maximise the opportunities to teach the Bible. Because as I maximise those gifts, so other Christians are grown up to maturity through the word of God, and they then are able to live fruitful, mature Christian lives. So one lad came up to me once in Perth, maybe he's listening to this, and uh, he said to me, uh, we were doing a breakfast, and it, I've been talking about paid set-aside gospel ministry, and he said, but oh, they've told me I'm going to be a great head teacher and all the rest of it. Maybe he's about 26. You think, well, <laughs> that's, that's quite a view of yourself. But <laughs> anyway, he's, oh, I'm going to be a head teacher and therefore I could have great influence. Yeah, yeah, but but you've got Bible teaching gifts. And if you determined to be set aside to lead a church, let's say of 50 people in that church, and one of them is a teacher, your Bible teaching gifts will enable that teacher to go and replace you, if you like. And the other 49 who will become gospel workers in their schools, in their 
hospitals and all the rest of it, you know, and on, on the shop floor and in, in the home, they, they will be liberated into um, fruitful gospel ministry. So, so maximise it. I don't know what he ended up doing. Who knows? Maybe he's a head teacher <laughs> somewhere. You know, um, I went to the Amazon head office just down the road from here not too long ago with a friend for lunch. And on their top floor, it's this, it's like a penthouse suite. It's this beautifully arranged room with all sorts of fancy things. But they've got this big exposed brick wall. And on it is this ginormous sign. And it says, have fun, work hard, make history. Mm. Which is quite a claim. And I guess, well, you know, a lot of us might believe that about Amazon, biggest company in the world at some point or whatever. But really, I don't know, what are they doing? Just getting our groceries to us a bit quicker and that kind of thing. I think we make history by engaging in the work of the gospel. That's amazing, isn't it? Like, as you're saying, you don't have to work for Amazon. (laughs) Mm. You can work for... You can be the lowest rung at the smallest company and actually making history. I think we should perhaps get that neon sign on the side of our church. What a great idea. Did I, did I mention um, uh, the school teacher in, in the talk? Yes, yeah, again, yes. There he is. And my dear friend Robin mm-hmm. saying, you know, well, I got started as a Christian when somebody brought Bible reading notes Round my desk mm. or whatever it happened to be, and and I got into to, to reading the Bible, and there there's um, David Cooper who was at that school, you know, all of his working mm. life as far as I can make out, and actually at his funeral there were like like five hundred people apparently at his funeral, so he was really really well respected mm. and well remembered, and I love the examples you gave. Um... What did you say? Whether it's that text sent, that flaky one-to-one that you meet up with, that coffee. In all these little ways, they seem so small, but history is being made. And isn't it, I mean, it is just back in the parable, you know, verse 17, well done, good servant, because you've been faithful and a little you shall have authority over 10 cities. So, I, you know, you talk to me about um, speaking into the heart and life of the person. And again, I think that does come from meditating on the text and seeing the Lord at work personally. And what a day it will be. Well done, good servant. You've been faithful in a very little. And it's that very little. Again, every word. I mentioned Simon Manchester earlier. He used to say again and again, the treasure is in the text. You know, you've been faithful in a very little that's a beautiful thing, isn't it? Just that little thing. So all of those examples come out of the mm. you've been faithful in a very little, the treasures mm. in the mm. text. Mm. And then you can actually pause, ponder, pray about it, think about it. And then you begin to think, yeah, well, there. Uh, it's not the treasure has been in the text as in the text message you sent. It's the text <laughs> in front of your nose. But then you're thinking, well, yeah, it's the WhatsApp. It's the, you know, it's it's the prayer. It's the meal cooked and taken round. It's and the- I, I remember hearing that when you did these talks. And like you say, that those words, very little, are so wonderful and encouraging. And I, at the time, I'd just been gutted that some of the ministries I'd wanted to be involved in, I couldn't do for various reasons and various things going going on in life. But actually, it was so encouraging to be reminded 
that the Lord gives us the ministry to do. And it might not be as magnificent and grand as other ministers and the great heroes of the faith. But actually the Lord gives us the work to do and it's what we do with, well, it might just be a very little, it might be a very little life indeed, but it's, it's whether you're faithful with it and that's what he'll commend. There's that amazing quote by Don Carson, isn't it? I can't remember word for word how it goes, but he says, I'm sure on that day there will be many people forgotten to history, receiving a far greater crown than those in spotlight ministries. I suspect we will be quite surprised as to who the great heroes of the faith are. So William, taking a step back, looking at the bigger picture, what do you hope that this talk, this passage will achieve in the Christian leaders who are listening to it? Oh yeah, well, I think it's so liberating, actually, that... This is what they taught us in, not necessarily in Sunday school, but in grade one of what is gospel ministry. And gospel ministry is gospel ministry. It's not some highfalutin, you don't have to have a PhD in sociology or, I'm sorry, if you have got a PhD in sociology, that's absolutely wonderful, don't misunderstand me, (laughs) I'm going to get slated for that. But, But, you know, you don't have to have, you know, you don't have to have elephant juggling skills or whatever it happens to be you know it's actually very very simple it's the gospel and if if that encourages people just to do kind of the old-fashioned gospel work that we've all been taught is, is what it's about it's very liberating actually that it's his you know all the things we've said and and to give ourselves wholeheartedly to it it's just profoundly liberating uh, and then we will get on and do it and not not get distracted by thinking that the kingdom comes this other way or the other way or the other and therefore we have to have all these additional things but just get on with the simple little things william is there anything about this talk you'd change if you preached it again Oh, a thousand things. I mean, I think probably we talked about pace. I think we probably lost a bit of pace at the end there in the talk. And perhaps if I had a bit more pace at the beginning and moved through and then had had kind of more time at the end, that, that, that would, have been, would have been better. I don't think I really treated the guy who put his money in, in the handkerchief with a great deal of depth, partly because, you know, I, I, I mean, actually, there's a lot of the text is there, isn't it, um, on that. So if you look at the length of the parable, there's a lot of material on that. So I don't think I did. And, you know, is that, should I have spent longer there? Yeah. William? It's been so helpful speaking to you in these past two episodes. We're so glad to have had you on the show. Thank you so much for these talks on Luke 17 to 19. And thank you for coming to speak to us further about them. Well, I've loved being here. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Bible Matters podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, why not like and subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts? The Bible Matters Project is funded entirely by the generous gifts of our listeners. And if you yourself would like to become a financial partner with us, you can find more details on how to give in the show notes.
The Bible Matters podcast is an initiative of St. Helen's Bishop's Gates and is created by myself, Leo Elborn, along with Tiff Stromso. Music for this episode was written and produced by me, Leo Elborn, and Josh Stidwell. You can listen to more of Josh's work at Stids with a one, that's S-T-1-D-S. Thanks again for joining and we hope to see you again soon.